The Lord just keeps bringing me circling back around things on Wednesday night that have to do with where we are right now as a church and our pursuit of revival. And this may seem to be a little bit off the path, but I think if you think about it, you'll find it's not. One of the things that you need to recognize and be ready for, by the way, we're in Second uh, Timothy chapter 4. One of the things you need to be ready for is whenever you get active for God, whenever you start trying to move in a direction for God, Satan's going to fight it, the world's not going to like it, and your flesh is going to hate it. And those three get active. And I have found that since, since I have perceived that the Lord seems to be trying to move us in a direction as a church and working in my life personally, I find that my struggles have increased. I've been to revival meetings where, I mean, it was so thick and it was so on that, that people walk away from them on cloud nine, and I thank the Lord for that. I do. And you know, the old saying, boy, I could swing over hell on a rotten corn stalk and shoot the devil in the eye with a water gun kind of high. But I find that the more that I pursue revival and the more that I deal with things and hit a little more accurately let the Holy Spirit deal with things in my life, the lower I get. It's a good thing to go to the doctor. It's a hard thing to hear what he has to say. It's a good thing to get into God's word and use it as the mirror that James describes it as. But oftentimes it's hard to hear the diagnosis and harder still to deal with the prescription. And yet, strangely enough, despite the struggle and the relative sadness that I've dealt with, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying I walk around my head hung down all low all day, but as you deal with things in your, in your heart, different people respond in different ways. And, you know, I think of Isaiah. Isaiah saw God on his throne, high and lifted up. And what was his response? Woe is me. For I am undone. And the more that I see God evidently moving in my life, the more my flesh rebels. The more the world seems to entice, and the more the devil rants and raves. And yet, in the midst of all of that, I believe with all of my heart that I am squarely in the center of God's will. I'm not always what I should be, but I'm where I should be doing what I should be doing in the way that I should be doing it. You would think if those things are true that life would be sunshine and roses, but Paul would beg to differ. Because when you read 
2 Timothy chapter 4, you are reading the last words of Paul. And we look at verses 6 through 8. Let's start by reading those, verses 6 through 8. I want you to note the triumphant tone. In fact, we preached a message on this not too far long ago that was about being ready, for I am now ready. Listen to this triumphant tone. For I am now ready, verse 6, to be offered, to be poured out. And the time of my departure is at hand. Remember that word departure has several meanings. Two of them come to mind when you pull up your tent pegs. What did Peter call our bodies? An earthly what? Tabernacle. A tent. (laughs) One of these days we're going to pull up stakes and we're going to go home. But then it's used to describe a ship that's loosed from its moorings to go out to sea. One of these days, the old ship of Zion is going to take us across. For I'm now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. If I am aware in my final moments, I sure hope I can say this. I've fought a good fight. I've finished my course. I've kept the faith. Henceforth, there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. Now, when Paul strikes this triumphant tone, Understand that he is not sitting in a carpeted, air-conditioned church building. He's not addressing people from his study um, under the rafters or the girders of their newest building project. He is making these statements from the Mamertine prison. I hope to one day see it. My two dream trips are one to the Holy Land, and I want to see everything from Dan to Beersheba. And if I got time, I want to go down and see the pyramids while I'm there. And then to follow the journeys of Paul, which is becoming politically more and more problematic these days. You go into a lot of Muslim areas when you do that. But to go to Rome, I don't care much about seeing St. Peter's Basilica. I'm an, I appreciate good art, but that's about as far as it goes. But I want to see the Mamertine prison, because that's where this was dictated. Probably to Luke. It's a hole in the ground. You're lowered down in there. He's down there alone. And he's dictating this to Luke, shouting up. It's, it's cold. 
It's dark. It's dank and damp. It's, it's, it's got mildew and filth and sludge and, and no shortage of rats. He is in terrible circumstances. And yet, his tone, I am now ready to be offered. And the time of my departure is at hand. I fought a good fight. I finished my course. I've kept the faith. What a tone. And yet he struck that tone amidst terrible, horrific circumstances. So, if you were one of Job's friends, you'd have to say, well, Paul must have did something wrong because when you're right with God, you don't get into that kind of stuff. No, Paul in that moment was 100% squarely where God intended him to be. The TV preachers don't like to say those kind of things, that sometimes being in God's will means you're in unpleasant circumstances. Because that doesn't sell well, and it certainly doesn't generate a lot of giving. But the fact is there are times in our lives that even though we are squarely in the center of God's will, we are where he wants us to be, doing what he wants us to be doing in the way that we should be doing it, we still find ourselves in difficult, maybe even stinky, nasty, unpleasant circumstances. What if God's will places you in a terrible way? That's when you find out what you really believe. My soul, it's easy to live for God when everything is as we think it should be. But when everything's going haywire, everything's just messing up, everything hurts, everything is sad, everything is difficult, everything is ugly, then you find out what you really believe and what you know is true about God. So the question I want to ask tonight, and let me go ahead and put the caveat out there now. If there's ever been a message that I've preached that I am not fully living, it's this one. Well, you ought to only preach things that you're fully living. <laughs> Better not preach any more then. Because the fact is we all have work to do in any, any given situation, any given subject. But just because I'm still struggling with it myself doesn't mean it's not right. You ever heard of such a thing, a pastor telling his people he doesn't live what he preaches? I try to, and many times by God's grace I do, but I'm just telling you, these are seven things that I struggle with, but I know them to be biblical. So here's the, here's the, here's the title, you ready? Bearing up when beaten down. How to bear up even though you're getting beaten down. Father, help us, I pray. Help me. 
to live according to these principles in your word. Lord, maybe this message encourages somebody that, that, that needs this specific content, or maybe, Lord, it prepares us for when we will. Or it may be that we don't need this message in particular. I do, but maybe somebody else doesn't. But there's something within this message or within these verses that you've carved out just for them. Whatever the case may be, I pray that everybody would profit from your word tonight. Help me to preach it in such a way that I please you and don't get, the, don't get in the way of it. And may Jesus be lifted up in it. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. So you're getting a little bit beat down. Maybe it's medical, maybe it's emotional, maybe it's um, physical, maybe it's, it's your job, maybe it's a family matter, whatever. You, you, you're getting beat down. How do you bear up? How do you thrive? How do you have that victorious tone that Paul did? Well, number one, manage your expectations. Disappointment would well be defined as when circumstances don't meet our expectations. We're disappointed. And it's a whole lot easier to change our expectations than it is to change our circumstances. It's just like, it doesn't have anything to do with the message, but I've been told that being rich is when your haves equal your wants. It's a whole lot easier to change your wants than it is your haves. Well, well, disappointment is when, when life doesn't meet your expectations. But you know what we find out? We find out when we really study the word and we live for God, we find out that we get in trouble when our expectations are different than what God has for us. Look at verse number 9. He's writing to Timothy. He says, Do thy diligence to come shortly unto me. What does he mean when he says, Do thy diligence? Timothy, make your very best effort. I want you to come to me when and if you can. But within that language, what is Paul conceding? You may not get here in time. I may be gone by the time you get here. Do your best. But that's all I can ask of you. Now, Paul could have said, Timothy, you've got to get here. Nothing less than you getting here post-taste will satisfy. No, he didn't do that. He said, do your best. What was Paul doing? He was managing some expectations. And sometimes we go to God and we decide to, to dictate to God what we think he should do when, he thinks he should, when we think he should do it, and we set up these expectations Listen, I struggle with it. I believe with all of my heart God wants us to build the Family Life Center. Can I tell you, he has not lived up to my expectations yet. I don't like his timing. I wanted it a year ago. Well, well, Andy, your expectations are wrong. That's correct. They are. Now, which is easier for me to change? My expectations or build that building? Now, if you've got a way to build that building easier than my expectations, let's do it. My, my point is this. I have got to submit myself to the will of God, not only in what he wants to do, but when he wants to do it and how he wants to do it. I have to learn to manage my expectations. And when you're sitting in a Mamertine prison of somewhere in your life and you don't like where you are, you've got to learn to change what you expect of God. 
manage your expectations. Now, this next one, I think I struggle with as much or more than any of the other six. And my wife, if she were in here, she would shout amen. Ready? Don't define correctness by your crowd. Don't define correctness by your crowd. Look at uh, verse number 10. For Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world, and is departed unto Thessalonica, Crescens to Galatia, Titus unto Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Now, I do think that we need to make a distinction here. I believe, based upon how it's written, I believe Demas forsook Paul, but the other two mentioned there, Crescens and Titus, were on a mission. They, they did not forsake Paul. They were simply away from Paul. Nothing that we know about Titus is anything but faithful. Okay, So I think, I think Demas is included in there, but the fact is Demas is gone, Crescens is gone, Titus is gone. Only Luke is with me. Look at verse number 16. At my first answer, and I believe he's talking about that first hearing before Caesar. At my first answer, no man stood with me. So as Paul is writing to Timothy, he's got one guy with him, and that's Luke. And there's an argument to be made that the only reason Luke was there was maybe because he was his physician and had to be there. Now, I think Luke was glad to be there. But it would be real easy for Paul to start questioning whether or not he missed something because now he's alone. But whether or not he was correct had nothing to do with how much of a crowd he had around him. Can I remind you? There was a point in which Jesus was forsaken by all. Was he ever incorrect? And sometimes we look at our own lives and the situations that we're in, and we know what the Bible teaches, we know what the principles and the precepts are, and yet we start wondering, well, maybe I'm doing this thing wrong, or maybe I'm, uh, you know, maybe, 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 maybe just, just following the Lord like this isn't the right thing to do, because look at me, I'm all alone. No, you don't define correctness by your crowd. Right is right if no one's doing it, and wrong is wrong if everybody's doing it. Can I tell you, I struggle. I can't tell you how many times I've sat down and tried to figure out ways to reinvent the way that I preach and the way that I pastor because some, you know, Joe Schmo on the other side of the county or some guy that I went to college with down in this place or whatever, they're just busting out the seams, and I'm like, what in the world? And any preacher that's honest will tell you they go through that too. But our correctness isn't about our crowd. It's about whether or not it lines up with the Word of God. Number three, how do we bear up when we're beaten down? You manage your expectations. Now, you'll need God's help to do that. With all of this, you will. Number two, you don't define correctness by your crowd. Number three, invest in others. Paul 
is possibly within days of his departure. I sometimes spend too much time thinking about different scenarios. I watched a a documentary on Ted Bundy one time. Ted Bundy, of course, a serial killer. James Dobson claims that he led Ted Bundy to the Lord. I, I hope he did. But they were interviewing people that were around Ted Bundy on the last day of his life. They said he was inconsolable. And I thought, what must it be like to be that kind of a person with no no Holy Spirit, presumably, to guide you and no, no spiritual or moral compass? And in a matter of moments, they're going to march you into that room and they're going to take your life. You know it. What must that be like? And and even as a Christian, even as a Christian, apart from dying grace, I would imagine there's some element of that that would be present for us. If if I were in a a gospel-hostile country and I was arrested for preaching the gospel and I was about to be executed, I would probably find that a heavy thing. Incidentally, apparently Paul didn't. Paul was excited. When Frank Garlock was told he had days to live, of course, he's the founder of Majesty Music, and without Frank Garlock, I doubt we'd have had a patch the pirate. Ron Hamilton kind of came in under his leadership, married his daughter, too. Uh, Jim Shetler, who for years was the pastor of the Campus Church of Pensacola, now lives in Milton, Florida, came to see or the Garlock. And he asked him, he said, what are you feeling right now? Pastor Scheller is excellent at asking the questions we all want to ask but are afraid to ask. What are you feeling right now? You know what he said? He said, I'm torn. He said, I don't want to leave my family behind. I love them dearly, but I really, really want to go see Jesus. My point is this, y'all. If there's ever going to be a time that I'm going to be introspective and quiet, it's probably going to be if I know I'm about to die. But not Paul. Right up until the last minute, Paul is constantly investing in others. I don't have but so much time. I have got to pour more into Timothy than what I have. And that's why you have the first five verses. Timothy, I'm about to die. I'm about to get out of here. But before I go, I charge thee, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be instant, in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers, having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. Timothy, watch that 
thou in all things. Endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist. Make full proof of thy ministry. Yeah, I'm about to go. I'm ready to be offered. But Timothy, there's more that I have got to pour into you. There's more that I've got to invest in you. And oh, by the way, yeah, only Luke is with me, but Take Mark and bring him with thee, for he is profitable to me for the ministry. I might have some time to pour into Mark too. Yeah, Mark goofed up and he left and I didn't want him back and Barnabas got mad and went off with him. But I'm telling you, God's done a work in Mark's life. Bring him back too. I might can pour into his life too. I'm just going to keep investing. By the way, verse 12, I've also sent Tychicus to Ephesus. There's still work to be done. And here's where we get into trouble, y'all. When we stop investing in others, we have no choice but to start looking inwardly. And when we start looking inwardly, we start feeling bad about ourselves. And we start having pity parties. And we start thinking how bad things have gotten. No, Paul just kept pouring and pouring and pouring and pouring into other people and investing in other people. And you see what it did to his spirit. Invest in others well i'm well past my if you think you're well past your opportunity to invest in others you're probably right where you ought to be because you're probably at a place in your life where you got a whole lot to pour out god's given you experience God, God's given you um, things that you have that you have gone through and yes he's provided you a certain degree of wisdom that is not meant to be hoarded and taken to the grave. It's meant to be invested. I was watching a video the other day. Richard and I are both baseball fans. They had just had the World Baseball Classic. And the hitting instructor for the U.S. team is a fellow named Ken Griffey Jr., And they showed a picture of Mike Trout. Mike Trout's won the AL MVP a couple of times at least. Mike Trout is a tremendous hitter. Ken Griffey Jr. is about my age, maybe a little bit older. And Ken Griffey Jr. is not quite as in bad a shape as I'm in, but he's getting there. And even though there's a little more of Ken Griffey Jr. than there used to be, and he's got some gray hair on his head, he got into the cage for batting practice sweetest swing in the history of baseball with the exception of maybe Will Clark but really I know you don't but anyway sweet swing he's been long retired but he got into that batting cage and he started taking swings and Mike Trout multiple AL MVP winner is sitting there with his fingers in the cage like a nine-year-old kid because Ken Griffey has skill and ability and experience and he's taking it all in. Jack Nicholas has won more majors than anybody else. I, I used to think Tiger would get it. He's not going to catch him now. He's just he's too old now. Jack Nicholas was at a course, and they were doing some kind of a pro-am. And Jack Nicholas is, I guess, in his 80s now. And the guy, it's, it's loose enough to where 
you know, they can have a little fun without having to play by all the rules. And the guys down at the bottom, you know, you have a green, and sometimes you have a shelf that goes down, and that green slopes down into another green. And he's like 100 feet away. I mean, just it's the worst putt you've ever seen. The guy, guy gets out his chipper. And Jack Nicholas says, you're not really going to use that on the green, are you? He goes, well, it's too far for the putter. Oh, you can hit it from there. He said, no, you can't. He said, yeah, you can. I could pull the video up for you and show you. Nicholas goes to his bag, gets a ball, drops it in the same proximity, steps up, and drains that thing. What am I saying? These guys are retired. These guys have been out of the game. These guys have stepped away, but they still have so much to pour into other people. Jack Nicholas may not can hit it 300 yards anymore, but I got news for you. If I'm, in, if I'm in the tee box and I got a choice of somebody to critique my swing, I'm going to listen to that guy. It doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter how long you've you know, been retired or how long it's been since you did this or did that or the other thing. God poured into you that you might pour into others. Invest in others. Next one. How do I bear up when I'm beaten down? Manage your expectations. Don't define correctness by your crowd. Invest in others. Now, now let me explain this next one. Build your ministerial self. Now, people hear the term ministerial and they think preachers. But ministerial is anybody who has a ministry. And if you have a ministry in any way, Sunday school, you know, sound booth, you, you know, whatever, or just soul winner, prayer warrior, choir member, anybody in here has a ministry and you need to build that ministerial part of yourself, not just even when you're down, but especially when you're down. Look at verse 13. He's in the, this pit, the Mamertine prison. In verse 13, he says, the cloak that I left at Troas with Carpus, when thou comest, bring with thee, and the books, but especially the parchments. What's he saying? Timothy, there's some things that I need. Number one, there's some things that my body needs. I need that cloak. It's cold down here. I need that cloak. It is not wrong for you to get the things in life that you need to take care of you. Well, I need a boat. That's not what I'm talking about. But the fact is, if there's something you need to do physically to get yourself strong enough to serve God, then do it. Build your ministerial self. He needed his coat. He was cold. But not just his body. You know what else? His soul. What's our soul? It's our mind and our emotions and our will. What did Paul ask for him next? He said, the books. What are the books? The books, I don't know exactly what books they were, but I know that they were secular as opposed to the scriptures. There were certain books that Paul derived pleasure or education or something out of that helped minister to his soul. And if there's something that you need to minister to your soul, then use it. For me, a lot of times, it's music. Now, we've got to be careful. Music that's not God-honoring isn't ministering to you. 
But I mean, I just, there's certain, there's certain music that I have in my playlist on my phone that I just, at night, if I'm having a hard time going to bed or whatever, I put my earbuds in, fire up my CPAP, <laughs> and it ministers to me. We've been doing something with Asher. Asher's been struggling a little bit with night terrors. So I downloaded the CD of scripture songs that Patch the Pirates group did. And he has a little Amazon dot that's in there. And I Bluetooth it to my phone and I start playing that music on a loop. And while he's laying there sleeping, he's hearing the word of God. You know what it's doing? It's ministering to his soul. Now we've only been doing it two nights, so I can't, that's not a large enough sample for me to tell you whether or not it's cured that. And last night his mom was in there with him most of the night, so that, that helps. He ministered to the body. He ministered to the soul. You know what else? He ministered to the spirit. He said especially the parchments. What are the parchments? The word of God. Maybe it's his Torah. Maybe it's earlier letters that he's written. Build your ministerial self. Otherwise, you won't have the strength to serve. So manage your expectations. Don't define correctness by your crowd. Invest in others. Build your ministerial self. (laughs) Here's another one. Boy, this is tough too. Learn to let things go. Let's be honest. There's just some things. There's some grudges we like holding on. We hold on to them like grim death. We just don't want to. Let, I I just I've gotten so good at being mad about this. I just don't know what I'd do without it. Learn to let things go. Look at verse fourteen. Alexander the coppersmith did me much evil. The Lord reward him according to his works. Now, that sounds imprecatory. That sounds like he's saying, yeah, just wait till God gets a hold of him. But I really don't think that's his tone here. I think what he's done in verse 14 is he has learned to let go in the matter of revenge. What's the Bible say? Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. He's let it go. What did Alexander do? I don't know. Some people have speculated that Alexander is the one that um, maybe testified against him at his hearing. I don't know. The Bible doesn't say. Whatever it was, Paul let it go. I'm going to mention something in our prayer time that, that dovetails right into this thing. He learned to let things go in the matter of revenge. But you know what else? He learned to let things go in the matter of remission too. You know what remission means? Forgiveness. Verse 16. At my first answer, no man stood with me, but all men forsook me. I pray God that it may not be laid to their charge. Isn't this interesting? Who else did we hear somebody, did we hear say something like this as they faced their own death? Jesus, for sure. But there was another guy, and Saul was there for his death. 
Stephen. Man, what an impact Stephen had on Paul. Because Paul ends up with the same mindset that Stephen had when he's facing his execution. By the way, forgiveness, this whole thing, forgive and forget. If you don't forget, you didn't forgive. That's not true. God is the only one who can will things out of his mind. Now, can God take things out of your mind? Sure. But only God can do that. But I'll tell you what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is you don't keep bringing it up. If my wife and I have a little bit of a spat, let's say I, let's say I did a wrong. Did something wrong. And every time I do something in the future, she brings up that thing again. Guess what? I, she didn't forgive me. But is she going to forget? No. You ladies don't forget. Learn to let things go. Can I tell you, when I've been down, when I've been beat down, some of the things that haunt me the worst are things that I have no control over. I just have not gotten to the place where I'm willing to let them go. It's completely self-inflicted. Number six, manage your expectations. Don't define correctness by your crowd. Invest in others. Build your ministerial self. Learn to let things go. And then number six, embrace the presence of God. Notice I didn't say ask for the presence of God or seek the presence of God. You can assume that God's there. Why? Because what did he say? I'll never leave thee, nor forsake thee. You might feel like God's not there, but he is. Lo, I'm with thee always, even unto the end of the world. What's he mean, that word world? He means the end of the church age. Well, church age isn't over yet, is it? We're all still here, aren't we? Now, if you see a bunch of people disappear all at once, Church age is over, and so are you. All right. Assume that he's there, but look at verse 16. At my first answer, no man stood with me, but all men forsook me. I pray, God, that it may not be laid to their charge, notwithstanding. The Lord stood with me and strengthened me, that by me the preaching might be fully known, and that all the Gentiles might hear and I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. The truth is, I've never really been alone. And when you're, when you're beat down, dismiss this idea that God has forsaken you. Because he hasn't. He's bound by his word to stay right there with you, yea, inside of you. I, I go back to this illustration frequently. I don't mean to belabor it, but it's such a, it's such a, a useful illustration when we, we had our first miscarriage. And I've talked about how I went down and sat in the dark and God ministered to me through a specific song and through some scripture and all of that. But, but let me just say this. I don't know of a time that I have ever more clearly felt the presence of God than I did that night. It was so clear. 
It was so warm. And yet here's the thing, y'all. He had always been there. And just because I don't feel it doesn't mean it's not so. The question is, are we embracing it? Are we embracing it? Number seven, bearing up when you're beaten down. Manage your expectations. Hey, by the way, this whole thing's easy preaching, hard living. Whole thing. Whole thing. Manage your expectations. Don't define correctness by your crowd. Invest in others. Build your ministerial self. Learn to let things go. Embrace the presence of God. Number seven, live in light of eternity. We are so narrow-minded when it comes to our existence. I get it, y'all. The, the, the three score and ten seems like a long time. But those of you, those of you that have passed it, I'm not asking for a show of hands. But those of you that have passed it, and even those of us that haven't, would you agree with me that looking backward, it's moved pretty fast, hasn't it? The old timers, when I was a little kid, used to tell me, the older you get, the faster you go. go, Yeah, I'm 47 years old. Now, I know to some of y'all, I'm still a kid, but I'm going to tell you, I ain't a kid. I don't feel like a kid. I'm, I'm, I'm being too loud again. I don't feel like a kid. And then I catch myself saying things to my kids that my parents said to me, my parents who were old from day one. We went down to, um, to uh, commit Mrs. Burgett to the ground. And one of my in-laws, my sister-in-law, made this statement. She said, do you realize we're older than they were when they started having their families? Well, thanks a lot. That makes me feel great. But her point was this. They were young too once. We looked through a lot of pictures. And time just goes. But if we're not careful... We can treat these 70, 80, 90 years as though that's what's permanent. When in reality, it's just temporary. We need to be living for that which is permanent. Look at verse 18. Listen to where Paul's mind is. How is Paul so relaxed? He's about to get beheaded. Now, admittedly, beheaded is preferable to crucifixion, I would think. But it's not exactly something I'm lining up to do. That's what he says. And the Lord shall deliver me, verse 18, from every evil work and will preserve me unto his heavenly kingdom to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. He is looking beyond. The way that I raise my kids has to be dictated by looking beyond. The way that I treat my wife has to be dictated by looking beyond. The decisions we make in this church and this school and other ministries within this one need to be made by looking 
beyond. We have got to live in light of eternity. I believe with all of my heart that there is a twilight that exists for a lot of people that are close to crossing over, that physically they're still here, their heart's still beating, they're still taking breaths, but spiritually they're gone, or at least they can see over. I believe that. A lady posted a video. She's a hospice nurse, and she uh, posted a video that was shared by a family member of a dear old man in his last moments. And he's doing this. He's reaching forward and he's smiling. Now, I don't know if that man was saved, but I kind of think maybe he was. Because I've been at enough bedsides that I've seen somebody look me in the eye, but it was evident to me that they were looking right through me. They saw eternity. Now, here's my question. Do we have to wait until our deathbeds to look beyond all of this and see him? I don't think so. I think that God will help us to so live in light of eternity that we can see the glint of heaven on all kinds of things down here. I got a little bit of it yesterday. There's one member of my family who's not yet saved, and that's my son. He's safe currently, but he's not saved. And he's over there playing with his toys or fiddling with something. He's doing something. And he's singing to himself. You know what he's saying? In Christ alone, my hope is found. And he knows all the words. I want to raise that boy in light of eternity. Because that is permanent. Whatever you're under here, as hard as it is, and I'm not belittling how hard it might be. Some of you have been through some horrific circumstances. But can I remind you, just like with Paul, the kingdom of heaven awaits. And that's where we'll be forever. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace.